Welcome to the Housing Matters Podcast, brought to you by the California Association of Realtors and the Center for California Real Estate. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Housing Matters Podcast. My name is Oscar Way. I'm Senior Economist at the California Association of Realtors. Now, today we have a slightly different format. Normally, I recorded with uh, Jordan Levine, another senior economist of California Association of Realtors. But today I have a special guest. I have a special guest from Florida. And um, he's been with, um, he's been in the real estate industry for quite some time. And I'm very glad to have him as our guest at the Housing Matters podcast. Um, my special guest is John Tassello. Welcome, John. Thank you, Oscar. It's a delight to be here. Now, let me introduce uh, a little bit, give you a little bit of background information about John. Now, as I said, John has been with the uh, real estate industry for quite some time. He's an economist, he's a consultant, and he's an author, and he's one of the most respected real estate and housing finance economists in the U.S. John, uh, I know you um, got your degree from Georgetown University and uh, uh, Cornell University, and you have a, a Ph.D. in economics. Yes, I do. And I know you have been uh, in... Um, in, in the real estate industry for, what, 20, 30 years or well, so? It, it actually goes back to about 1975 when I went on a Brookings Economic Policy Fellowship to HUD uh, to the Housing Finance Analysis Division. And that's really kind of the first time I took my economics background and made it specifically relevant to housing. Okay. So okay. I've really been dealing with housing and housing finance since 1974. And uh more specifically with the real estate industry since 1987. Uh, so it's been a long time, yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, so when you were in Georgetown and, uh, and at Cornell, real estate was not specifically what you had in mind. No, I was really more of a monetary economist, and I just applied it to housing finance. So I came at real estate through the mortgage analysis uh-huh. kind of path and uh, gradually began to know more and more about real estate. Got it. Uh, because I already had the financial background. Got it. I know you were um, the chief economist at the National Council of Saving Institutions. Right. Um, of course, that ties in with the mortgage background. Right. But um, you know, with uh, with uh, NAR, you actually uh, were the chief economist for NAR from 1987 to 1997. Right. Ten years. Yeah. So you know, you have a lot of experience in the real estate industry, and of course, um, uh, you you were the chief economist at the Florida Association of Realtors, uh, created the research department. Right. Yes, that was an adventure, and it was, it was actually very fulfilling. Uh, it was neat to be able to start from scratch and just create something like that. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. And I believe that was the first time when you were with Florida Association Realtor, that was the first time that I met you. Right, exactly. Uh, sure. Mm-hmm. And I believe um, the first meeting that we had was probably at an NAR um, annual conference. Might have been the May meetings, because it seems to me that would have been, well, maybe not. Maybe it was the annual conference. Sure. One of those, an yeah. NAR meeting. That's and I remember sure. that NAR meeting was probably an NAR meeting in California. Well, um. yeah, most likely, <laughs> sure. San Francisco, I guess, or San Diego. That's where we've been meeting lately or where NAR's been meeting lately. Absolutely. And then I know you wrote a few books. Now, well, you wrote... More, um, more books than I want to count. <laughs> uh, so just to name a couple, you know, the eight new rules of real estate, um, click and close, 
and then a new business models for the new economy. Mm-hmm. And I know you maybe recently wrote uh, some crime fiction novels. Yeah, I'm actually uh, in the process of publishing my fourth crime oh, fiction wow. novel. So yeah, and trying, trying to start the fifth, but it's very difficult. This one's proving to be a little bit of a challenge. <laughs> I know, I mean, economics, you can base on theories and stuff like that, but crime fiction novels, you have to have some creative juice, right? No, you absolutely do. I mean, people have accused me of writing fiction all my career, but... <laughs> um, so, yeah, you do, and, and, and but it's interesting because there are no limits. I mean, clearly in economic analysis or market analysis, you're limited by what's happening in the market. You're mis- limited by various uh, constraints, various um, requirements. And But when you're writing fiction, pure fiction, you create your own world and you just live in that world. And it's very much fun. I really That's enjoy it. very cool. Yeah. That's very cool. I often tell my friends when they retire, you have to have a day gig. <laughs> and so when I sort of cut back from being very active in the real estate industry, uh-huh. my, gig, my day gig is writing uh, crime fiction. Wow, very interesting. Well, at some point, I'm going to ask you for you know your the copies and maybe sign it for me. Absolutely, you know, novel. Absolutely. I want to I want to read more of the stuff. Now, before we get into that, you know, uh, we, let's talk. Let's turn our attention to the real estate industry. You know, we have some interesting time uh, for the last couple of years uh, recently, um, both at the national level and at the state level in California. We start seeing a little bit of a shift or transitions, mm-hmm. uh, if I may say. But before we get into that, let me ask you, you know, for the last, for the for the years that you have worked in the real estate industries, um, you probably have uh, seen a lot of changes. Um, just kind of give me a little bit of a take of what you have seen in the last, you know, last 20 years or so and, you know, what we're seeing right now, whether you think it's something mm-hmm. abnormal or not. I think the biggest change that I've seen over the time has been the uh, change in the brokerage function. That's really where the action has been. Okay. Uh, When I sort of started uh, learning about the real estate industry and I started working in the real estate industry, uh, brokers were pretty much on top. Um, Okay. Company dollar at that time was maybe 35 cents. Um, Over time, that's gradually eroded. And with it, the erosion of the middle in terms of the brokerage industry. So the brokerage industry is polarized between small companies where the broker is actually able to sell mm-hmm. and very large companies where you can implement economies of scale and live on that smaller margin. So that middle where you had a broker in a mid-sized company who was purely a broker and lived off the proceeds from the company that's kind of disappeared. That's really been the biggest change. Now, that's been enhanced by the growing power of the agent. It's been enhanced. That trend has been enhanced by the creation of teams and uh-huh. the growth of teams uh-huh. and all those things. But the biggest change that I've seen uh, has really been the erosion of the brokerage function and the polarization of the brokerage function. And I think that's where we are now. Okay. Now, of course, I have to say, you know, all these different uh, uh, business models and different changes, right, exactly. they have a lot to do with technology as well. Absolutely. Now, in the 80s and the 90s, I mean, when you look at active listings, you go to a brokerage firm and you ask a realtor to show you some listings on paper. But today it's a little different, right? Oh, no, it's been completely made, made completely electronic as everything else has been. So it's not the real estate's not different in that regard. I think there are some things, however, which you you have to really look at. You have to differentiate between things which disrupt the industry and uh-huh. things which are um, new models. Uh-huh. 
new models have legs and they have lasting power. Uh-huh. Redfin, for example, has lasting power, has legs. It's, it's a new model, it's a new way of doing business. There are other things which look great, not because they're fundamentally sound, but because of the state of the market. Okay. Okay. So, you know, things, things may look good. You know, you, you can build a house on the sand and it looks great until high tide comes and you're underwater. True. That's the that's way it is with these, uh, a lot of these so-called disruptors. They, they cause agitation in the market for a while, but they don't have any lasting legs. And I think the way you look at the market and the way you analyze the market is to ask that question. Does this particular company have legs or is it merely a uh, flash in the pan, if you will? Okay. Um, take the case of something like Compass. Compass is, uh-huh. Compass is actually a fairly standard real estate company is a little more reliant on technology, but just has a ton of money behind it. That's true, and, yes. And, and the question is, will Compass last or will it not? There is the model, the kind of Google, Facebook, Amazon model, where someone comes in using technology, has a lot of money, and takes over the market. That's one, mm-hmm. that's one scenario. Scenario two is all those technological startups in the late 90s that occurred burned through their venture capital and went out of business. So which is it? Which is that going to be? I think the jury's still out. The point is, however, that you really have to analyze things from the viewpoint of this this thing have legs. Does it have uh, the power to, to sustain itself and continue? Got it. But in your opinion, I mean, well, we, we use disruptors, disrupting the industry. In your opinion, you know, is disruption a good thing? Again, it probably goes back to what you um, referred to earlier about whether it had as legs or not. But is disruption good for the uh, for the uh, real estate industry? Oh, it's always good. It's always good. I mean, you know, if there were no such thing as disruption, realtors would still have uh, listings on eight by uh, five by eight file cards with little holes in the top. <laughs> so you can poke a knitting needle through and pull up to all the three bedrooms, you know, and look at all of them. Um, I think real estate is not a business which in and of itself would be progressive. But uh-huh. because technology forces it to be progressive, it becomes progressive. I think disruption in this case is good. I think it will move the industry closer to where the cutting edge of business is and will be able to, I don't want to say, well, expose the kind of weaknesses that have sort of crept into the industry over the years. Um, a company that uses technology uh-huh. wisely, and, and I got to tell you, just sort of in, in the interest of full disclosure, my approach to technology is you, you really should know what, it's, what it does and not what it is. Right. You don't need to know how to wire a house to turn on a, <laughs> turn on a switch and cause light to occur. And I think realtors have to focus in on as far as technology is concerned, what is it I need to do? In other words, what's, what's my objective? What's my goal? What's my right, vision? Okay. And then say, what are the best possible tools I can use to get me to that vision? And those tools now increasingly include technological tools. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Very well said. Now, let's turn our attention to you know something uh, related to economics. Ooh, um, <laughs> what a now, novelty. Now, of course, you can go on for hours on this, but let's uh, let's hone in and focus on, you know, the current market's conditions. Sure. Uh, sure. As I said earlier, 
you know, we seem to have a little bit of a market transitions in the last few months or so. We're seeing home prices, of course, in the last year, year and a half, maybe th two, three years. Uh, prices have risen a lot, especially in California. Oh boy. Um, just the last <laughs> couple months or the last three, four months, I think we are seeing a year over year growth of seven or eight percent in terms of um, price growth. And at the same time, sales seem to have actually, you know, kind of slowed down a little bit. Um, so do you think that prices have gone up a little too high? We're a little bit bubblish or what's your take on that? Well, you know, I do not think that prices, price growth is out of line, given the fact that inventory conditions are so tight. Not only in California, it's, uh -huh. it's, it, it's countrywide. It's countrywide. Absolutely. Uh, I'll, go, I'll reflect on a state that I know very well, namely Florida. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And Florida and California are alike in the sense that while there is sufficient inventory at higher price levels, once you get down to the places where people actually have to live, All right. you know, uh, median price, around median price, below and, and slightly above, then you really have tightness. You have a lot of tightness. Oh, and because absolutely. of that tightness, those properties are perhaps being bid up a little more than they should. But I don't think price growth is terribly out of line, certainly not the way it was in uh, 04 and 05 and 06. Uh, that, that was outrageous. Mm -hmm. and I think that's largely because of credit conditions having tightened up. Um, there are some who say that credit conditions are being loosened again. I don't really see it, but who knows? Um, so I don't think that's an issue. I think the, I think the sales lag is very much a function of we don't have anything to sell. Mm -hmm. All right. So why why would you expect sales to sort of continue to rise? I think there is a light at the end of that tunnel. Okay. However. Well, that's good. And I'll, I'll flip back to the end of the uh, Great Recession in 2009. Now, in 2009, a lot of money moved into the market buying up foreclosed homes, in particular California and Florida. Right. Funds would come in. They'd buy up houses in bulk couple hundred at a time, perhaps, and package those together into an investment fund uh, right. and sell shares in that fund. For the most part, and I, this is not universally true, but for the most part, those funds on paper, in terms of their prospectuses, had a life of 10 years. Okay. So in 19 and 20 and 21, something is going to have to be done with those houses, which all became rentals. Okay. Now, what can be done? Other buyers could come in and buy them and keep them as rental properties. That's one scenario. Another scenario is the properties could be sold, let out to the market, um, and therefore increasing the supply at relatively modest price levels. Because these houses, if you recall, were not top-of-the-market houses. These are markets that are very much around median. Right. So you could see a, an inflow into the market of properties because... Uh, investors are selling them, or the large investors are selling them in bulk the way they bought them in bulk. So you have that kind of possibility. And the third scenario, uh, which adds nothing to the current situation, is if they simply allow folks who are in their houses to buy them. Okay. Just convert renters to buyers, but not expand the supply of property. So uh, there's a range of possibilities in there that I've just described. Where it's going to happen is probably everywhere along that spectrum. The mix of what happens will determine whether there's a loosening up of supply at the right levels of price. So 
it remains to be seen. I said there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but it is at the end of the tunnel. I understand. Who knows, who knows what kind of light it is. I know. So, I know. Yeah. Now, you, I'm glad that you brought up you know, supply issues. Right. Because we are seeing lately, we are seeing a little bit of uh, take, uh, uptick in uh, active listings in the last couple months or so. Right. Now, for California, we have been experiencing... Uh, almost three years of year-over-year decline of active listings. But uh, starting in May, we start seeing a little bit of increase. Now, do you think that increase could be attributed to what you just mentioned, maybe some of the investors' uh, belief? Yeah, without without has sort of having a good read on the market, without uh-huh. having studied in depth, I'd say there's a strong possibility. I think you guys here should see if that's what's happening, uh-huh. if you've got the numbers. Um, but I think a big part of the supply problem uh, aside from the lack of buildable lots, which is a problem, mm-hmm. um, that aside, a lot of the supply problem has to do with the building industry still being traumatized. Uh, it's equivalent to someone who was saved at the last moment from drowning and their attitude toward the water. Uh, okay. Because what happened? Builders build a lot of houses in the early part of the century. Between 2000 and 2006, tremendous number of houses went up here in California and Florida, especially, but all over the country. And those houses wound up in a very bad way. They wound up uh, being foreclosed, never sold. They wound up going to the hands of large funds, who, as I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the net of all this is that builders really became traumatized. And if you look at the numbers, the one area of the housing market, the one area of the housing sector, which is not fully recovered from the Great Recession, is home building. And and, uh, I think the builders are still traumatized by what went on in 6, 7, 8, and 9, and are not building. So we don't have the supply of new homes that we ought to have, given all the other economic variables we see, given the growth, given income, given consumer spending, given all this stuff, uh-huh. we don't have levels of home building which would be historically consistent with those numbers. And that, of course, impinges on the supply of housing. Absolutely. And, of course, I think from time to time we talk about you know, uh, one of the factors could be cost of constructions, including material as well as labor costs. Um a lot of labor might have left, you know, the real estate industries, and now, of course, uh, it's very tight in terms of supply of uh, labor in the in, in, in real estate industry. Um, and we are not building some of the slides. Some some pe- audience may have already uh, seen some of the slides. Uh, as far as supply is concerned, compared to demand, we're typically about 20 percent uh, below the demand. So it's definitely an issue in California as far as supply is concerned. Um, but another uh, reason for the supply concern, which we've talked about before, is the low turnover rate. Right. Um, some, uh, many of the um, homeowners are currently turning in, turning into many of them are baby boomers turning into the age of 55, 60, and that's the age when people don't usually move as often, and that affects the turnover rates. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, uh, we have a uh, the baby boomer age cohort is a big population group. Now, do you think that is going to be an issue for the next 10 years or so as far as turnover rates is concerned? Well, I'll be I'll be agnostic here and say that I don't know. I'll also tell you, you have a, uh, obviously you have a situation in California which uh-huh. doesn't exist in the rest of the country. Because under Prop 13, right. anyone who has been living in their house for any period of time has no option 
if they want to sell their house, but to move out of state. I think you saw it really in a lot of numbers back in the early 90s when California went into recession and people were downsized out of their jobs. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them were given early out packages and, and they realized they couldn't stay where they were. So what did they do? Well, they almost all moved to Nevada, which became the biggest, fastest growing state. Sell out of California, move to Nevada. It's cheaper, right? I right, can afford right. it, and I can't buy. I can't downsize in California. So you've got that problem, which is which is not absolutely unique, but is special a special case for California. Now, the other part of that, and the reason why I'm obno- obnoxious, <laughs> agnostic. <laughs> the reason why I'm agnostic about this whole uh, arrangement is that I don't know what the follow-up cohorts of the baby boom are going to do, and specifically millennials. Mm-hmm. They are the ones that are going to have to take over those baby boomer properties. Right. And there's a real question as to whether they are, in fact, as home ownership hungry as their forebearers were. Um, we know they're doing everything later. Okay, uh-huh. well, that's okay. So you adjust for that. Getting married later, forming families later. Uh, buying homes later. Okay, we know that. So we've got to account for that, but you also have to account for the fact that they may have, again, I'll use that word, they have been traumatized by their parents' experience during the recession. True. And have decided that it ain't going to happen to me. Right? Well, you know, if you want to draw, draw an analogy, draw an analogy to people who grew up during the Depression, who became real savers and, and became very conservative in their spending very, you know, very much job oriented to the point where you conform so that you don't lose your job. Well, are these millennials traumatized enough by their parents' experience that they're not going to be homeowners in anywhere near the numbers that the baby boomers were? And and I think the jury's still out on that. Mm-hmm. I don't think we know what their taste for home ownership is yet. If they're, if they're normal in terms of his, historical precedent, then we're fine. If they're not, then we have a problem of, oddly enough, and saying it today here, it's odd, excess supply. Boomers leaving, and don't forget, everybody's got to leave their house sometime. True. You know? Um, so we may have that excess supply going. And then to top that, we have the issue of what kind of preferences do millennials have vis-a-vis boomers? Do they have the same suburban preference? Or do they prefer an urban environment? Do they prefer an environment in which they only have to use their vehicle for one purpose, usually to go to work? And everything else can be done on foot or by bicycle or whatever. And that includes schools and shopping and entertainment and the whole range. And if that's the case, then you're going to find a greater preference and greater pressure on the urban supply of, of um, housing and, and a greater uh, excess supply in the suburban areas. So all these things are in the mix. And I think all these things play out over the next 10 to 15 years. And we'll find out more about what's going on. So right now, I'm, I'm agnostic. I don't know where this thing is going to wind up because there are a number of possibilities that I can see. And and I, I agree with you. Um, it's really hard to to get a sense of what's going on, you know, with all those moving parts. And you know, you mentioned about 
many of the millennial wants to live in, let's say, more urban settings, maybe, you know, maybe within walking distance. But at the same time, for people who live in L.A., you, we know that there are a lot of construction going on in downtown L.A., for example. But at the same time, because of the building costs, they can't make it very um, affordable. Some of the uh, housing in downtown L.A. could be uh, – 500, 600, 700,000 or so. For some of the millennial who wants to, uh, to to pick up those properties because they may not necessarily have a lot of down payment that actually affects you know their ability to buy. Right. Another uh, um, question that I have that maybe you can give me some insight is now many of those um, baby boomers when they uh, were when they uh, about to sell or move out of the state. They tend to have a bigger house than what a, a entry level or first time buyer wants to buy. Um, that difference in terms of supply and demand, do you think it's going to create an issue? That's the marvel. That's the marvel of the market. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't create an issue. It, the price will adjust to make the market clear. Mm, so economics works. We know that. <laughs> we both know that. But <clears throat> I want to go back just a second. That's why I think when you talked about building downtown uh -huh. or urban areas where the prices are so high. That's why I think it's very important to uh, applaud the project which the California Association of Realtors is undertaking now with its land here to create affordable housing in together with the redevelopment of its office space. I think that's a marvelous example. See, one of my one of my pet one of my pet beliefs uh -huh. is that a lot of what's wrong in society, and I'll stick to the housing market, a lot of what's wrong in the housing market can be cured most easily at the grassroots level if you define grassroots as companies. Okay. All right. So the creation of affordable housing is probably better done by Google than it is by the Congress of the United States. All right. That's my bias. All right. So that's why I like what you guys are doing. Okay. Let me go back to, to the question you asked uh, about... Um, the market clearing. I think the market will always clear and um, the price will adjust. So the boomer who's, who's selling out finally, uh -huh. retiring to a smaller place in the neighborhood, an urban apartment, another state, another country, I think we'll find that with everybody trying to do the same thing at roughly the same time, that they'll find that their houses were not going to sell for what they think they were going to sell for. Okay. And there's going to be a lot of disappointment there. <clears throat> but that's the way the market works, um, the excess supply. Now, will is there a market clearing price that's not disastrous? I think there is, but I don't know. You know, you could have a millennial, a millennial family who will say, there's no price which will allow me, which will entice me to live there. Okay. None. All right. So I don't know. I mean, it's again, it's it's up to the market. And I think you know, with prices, and correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, with prices going up, you know, seven or eight, nine percent in the last few years, you know, if we are seeing that transitions of, you know, maybe a, a few more baby boomers uh, trying to sell, I think, and maybe we are seeing it now that price will continue to grow, but at a, a slow rate, and eventually kind of phase out, rather than sure. what we saw in 19, uh, 2008 or seven. Or yeah, nine. I, I think you're correct. I also think that it becomes less important to look at a general price index, and more important to look at specific localized price indices. True. You may have a price index in downtown LA that's going up at 12 to 15 percent a year, and a price index in the Valley. 
that may be going up at 3% a year. Right. Well, that's an average of 7, say. All right. Well, guess what? That doesn't describe it either part of the market. That's so I think what true. you have to look at is more localized kinds of as, – as these trends begin to play their way out, certainly during a transition period, as these trends begin to play their way out, I think you may have to look at localized prices as opposed to more general across the market price increases. But I think generally you're correct about a slowing down of price increases. Definitely. Um, that's that's very on point. Now, let me ask you, um, we have a couple more minutes here. Let me just uh, try to ask you, you know, like maybe the last few questions. One thing that I we talked about, of course, we talked about a lot of different things, a lot of things about you know, the market, about you know, the disruptions, about the new business models. Um, if you have to pick uh, one thing or a couple of things, um, in the next couple of years, what do you think is the biggest risk for agents and brokers? Now, you can, it could be attributed to market. It could be uh, sure, policies sure. or whatever. What do you think is the biggest risk? Well, let me let me sort of attack that a slightly different way. Okay. I don't think it has been a time where the need to work on your business has been as great as it is now. I think there are a variety of challenges out there. We talked about demographics. We uh -huh. talked about the millennials, the baby boomers, and preferences and where they're moving and what they're doing. I think it's extraordinarily crucial for a broker and agent to understand their market now. I mean, if I were in the business, I would, I would employ some college student or high school student, but someone who knew how to deal with U.S. Census data. Okay. And I have them chop up and identify my market as much as they possibly could. Right. And I think that's crucial because that leads to the proper marketing, it leads uh -huh. to the proper uh, pricing. It leads to all sorts of things which make the business successful or not. I do that. I'd be very careful to understand the existing technology in the market and know what tools would work the best for me given my goals. There's an old saying that says that you should you should be technologically more advanced than your most advanced customer. Okay. Okay. Now, for someone dealing with uh, Sun City or a Dell Web property, or in our case, the villages in Florida, that might mean understanding how to work a laptop, <laughs> you know, understanding how to, how to use a tablet. Uh, for somebody up in Silicon Valley or in a lot of places in urban areas in this country, it may mean, in effect, either having the equivalent of a degree in, 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 in technology. <laughs> Software or, programming. Right. Or having someone who has a degree in technology at your right elbow. You know? um, so you've got to keep up. You've got to understand what level of technology you have to know about and know about it. Right? You, have to be you have to understand how to manipulate the, fi the financing market. Now, it's not as, as complicated as it was when we were being stupid back in 04 and 05 and 06, <laughs> but it is complicated. And then finally, you have to understand tax ramifications and tax changes right. in terms of how they affect the expenditure necessary to own a home. So those are the kinds of things which I deal with. But I think if there's one single thing, it's that you got to pay a lot of attention to your business, uh, more so than ever before, because there are a lot of moving parts out there. And unless you keep an eye on all those moving parts, you're going to have a problem being successful. Great. Very well said. Very, a lot of uh, value, valuable insights. 
any final words on uh, you know the industry and the market and uh, well anything else we want to add? Yeah, you know, I, I, I there are a lot of people who say well the realtor will never go away because you always need the the human touch. Uh -huh. And other people say, well, the realtor will be replaced by uh, some electronic circuitry. Robot or whatever. Right. <laughs> I kind of have a slightly different take on that. I believe that there is enough there for people to make a very good, successful career in real estate if they're very careful, knowledgeable, and keeping up on the market. I think my uh, example... I don't think the numbers are the same. My example is the travel industry. Everybody said travel right. industry is gone because of electronics. Well, it's not gone. There are there's an entire niche, an entire now sub industry, and it's much much smaller. Right. It's an entire sub industry dealing with people who want customization. Right? And I think the same thing applies to real estate. I think there's a far greater market than there is for travel, but customization where you are able to deal with the customer needs specifically and that requires a lot of knowledge on your part and a lot of understanding of what's going on and you know it's very very true that customers are more tax savvy they understand the market a lot more so you got to provide more right. um, uh, thank you again John for all the insights uh, this is great um, I can't wait to put it online and uh, have people listen to it um, Thanks again for uh, joining us for the uh, Housing Matters podcast. Uh, John, again, thank you very much. And I uh, would love to uh, have you get back, come back and, and do another one maybe in six months or a year or so. I'd be glad to do it, Oscar. It would be fabulous. And I'll make sure that you get some copies of the books. Great. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And uh, we will have another one posted um, in about two weeks. But uh, thank you again for tuning in for the Housing Matters podcast. Have a good day.